You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 17th of November. And on the programme today, we took a long look at power, specifically the Barakai Nuclear Power Plant, because we had an exclusive interview with Krista Victorson. He's the Director General of the Federal Authority for Nuclear Regulation, and he was celebrating the announcement that the fourth reactor in that plant is going to be allowed to start operating in the new year. And as a luxury retirement village concept launches in Dubai, we asked whether the future is grey or whether health costs make retirement in the UAE still a pipe dream. We spoke to the CEO of Avida and also caught up with Christopher Habib, who's Chief Strategy Officer at NMC Healthcare. Meanwhile, we spoke to tourist officials from the first net zero country. As they start direct flights from Sharjah, how will Bhutan keep its country sustainable? We got all the latest sports headlines from Chris McCarty. Plus, we crossed live to the Gulf with Zane. And as a new net zero school opens in Abu Dhabi, we found out how they've established their eco-credentials with the head of education for GEMS. And one young girl, a nine-year-old, has been chosen to address delegates at COP28. Selena joined us on the radio. Welcome back to the agenda. Big news story today, and that is that the fourth reactor at the Barakai Nuclear Energy Power Plant can now officially open. That is after officials at the Federal Authority for Nuclear Regulation here in the UAE received their operating licence. Now, this means that early next year, the entire power station will be operational. And that means it will be producing up to 25% of the UAE's electricity needs. Now, it's worth mentioning that nuclear power is widely considered more eco-friendly than oil and gas. And the plant is expected uh, to remove 22 million tonnes of carbon emissions every year. I say remove, it's, it, it's going to sort of prevent the, the build-up of 22 million tonnes of carbon emissions. That is the equivalent to removing 4.8 million cars from the roads. The plant's located in Al-Dafra. It's about 50 kilometres southwest of Abu Dhabi and it's on the Arabian Gulf. Now, to find out a bit more about what this fourth reactor means, earlier I spoke exclusively to Krista Victorson. He's the Director General of the UAE's Federal Authority for Nuclear Regulation. And he said the announcement marks a major step forward in the country's energy transition. This is the last of the four reactors in the present nuclear program. So by this, we should be able to get electricity from all the four reactors during next year. That must feel like a real achievement. This is the first nuclear power plant to be operating in the Middle East. That's absolutely true. It's a major achievement and it has been done also in rather short time. And it has been done based on all our regulatory requirements. So our role from FANR has been to make sure that it's safe, it is secure, and it fulfills all the obligations of the nuclear law and the expectation from the government that was issued in 2008 where they gave us the main principles for the nuclear program. It applies to all, to us and to the operator. 
And those are that we should follow complete operational transparency in order to maintain trust and confidence of the population, of the international community, that this program is peaceful, it's safe and secure, and will be able to produce electricity to the industry and the homes of the UAE. Also, the leadership expectations are that we should make sure that the nuclear power plants fulfill the highest standards according to international practices for safety, for security, and for non-proliferation. And this is the task of FANR in particular. And then we should work with other nations, other expert organizations. We should work with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And we should also, which is very, very important, build the local competence to make this program sustainable, which means that experts from foreign countries are here now and have been here to help establishing the program, establishing the regulation, etc. But at some point, the country itself needs to shoulder this responsibility. So we are building strong capacity at FANR, but also at the nuclear industry. This is always particularly interesting to hear someone such as yourself talk about the safety and the security of the plant. Because, of course, internationally, the nuclear industry does have its critics. We have seen, for example, nuclear power stations close in Japan and and specifically Germany. They've decided not to continue with their nuclear program. But here in the UAE, we are pressing ahead. And one of the reasons for that is because it is an environmentally friendly way of creating power. That's correct. This is part of the clean energy because nuclear power, when it's in operation, it doesn't emit greenhouse gases. So in, in that sense, it's it's a clean energy. You cannot only rely on one source, but nuclear power is certainly one contributor to clean energy and to decarbonization and to the worldwide efforts to fight climate change. And we are extremely tight with our regulations. So we follow international regulations, but we also take into consideration local conditions because a nuclear power operating in this region with very high temperature, with very high humidity, and also a lot of dust and sand. So there are particular conditions and we have made sure that the nuclear power can operate safely, even in this environment. But now we have to make sure that it's sustainable, that it's resilient to ongoing rapid climate change, because we don't know exactly what will happen. We see various types of unexpected effects all around the world, such as extreme weather, such as rising sea levels. And we have to make sure that this is also catered for. So we are on top of this. So there is no danger. Nuclear power is very robust. But we will do continuous assessment and reassessment to make sure that it's always, always safe. Have we had international observers coming to view the plant? Because I imagine there is a fair amount of interest in the Middle East for other countries potentially also building a nuclear program. Yes, This was part also of the transparency principle that we have invited experts teams from IAEA, but also from other organizations to come and check that we comply with international standards. 
we don't only say it, but we have also reports now from many teams that have been coming here to review our progress. We call them peer review missions. We put them on our website so everyone can read and everyone can see. We had also in the initial stage of the nuclear program an international advisory board with experts or high-level personalities from all around the world coming to Abu Dhabi, asking us, asking Fanner, asking ENEC, asking uh, Academia on how we are now fulfilling these principles that the leadership put together in the, in the nuclear policy. So with all four reactors operating, how much electricity will you be producing? How many houses will you be able to power over a year, for example? The estimation is that about a quarter, about 25% of all the electricity that we consume or that we need in the country will come now from Baraka and will be replacing fossil produced electricity. Instead, we can now switch to nuclear electricity from Baraka and thereby resulting in a better environment. Really interesting to hear there from Krista Victorson, Director General of the UAE's Federal Authority for Nuclear Regulation. On the news that the fourth reactor at the Barakai Nuclear Energy Power Plant can officially open. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here and I will be keeping you company all the way through Ooh, until 1pm. So into your weekend, basically, if one of those lucky people that gets to finish at midday. I can announce officially that the sun has got his hat on in Knowledge Village. A beautiful day out there. Um, Not all that encouraging, though, for people who are struggling to get through traffic dams because of water ponds. There was quite a bit around my area in Umsakim on the way in this morning. I've got this electric car and I fully got the fear that it was going to get flooded in some way. Um, So I went a slightly unusual route, shall we say. But yes, do keep a look out for lots of water on the roads. Although I can see the authorities out there right now on our local roundabout, draining it, sucking it up into a machine. Um, But yes, if you see any major puddles, please do send in a text message because it means people can avoid it. So 4001 or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 Now I know there was loads of rain in the Northern Emirates, lots of rain in Dubai this morning. My understanding so far is that it hasn't rained yet in Abu Dhabi. But if the rain comes for you, please tell us um, because it means that we can encourage everyone to drive safe. Yes, we are on weather watch on the agenda. We love a weather watch day. Don't get much weather in Dubai. So when we get it, we like to go with it. We are also, however, taking a look at now at a fascinating population story centred around the Grey Dirham. Now, this is a big expression in the United Kingdom. I don't know whether it's come over to the UAE yet, probably because there aren't very many old people living here. But it's a huge thing in the UK. You say it's the Grey Pound. And there's a lot of boomers in in the UK and the grey pound is powerful. Uh, Not so many boomers here. This is the the, the sort of generation um, who are probably around 60 now. Really a big population, large numbers of people because um, they were born in that post-World War boom. So there's a sort of there's more of them than of other generations, for example. The next big one, I think, is Gen Z or is it the millennials? You get these sort of swelling population surges. And one of them 
is the boomers. And there's loads of them, which means you can make lots of money out of them if you get it right. But so far over here in the UAE, there hasn't been a big grey market, so to speak. But perhaps that is now going to change because a new residential retirement estate has launched in Dubai with the aim of establishing a luxury community where older people can live out their days in comfort. Now, the company that's running it is called Avida. They say it'll include a longevity centre and an holistic wellness space. But what does that actually mean in practice? I'm joined now by Her Excellency Hafsa Al-Ulama. She is the CEO of Avida. She's joining me on the phone. Good morning, Your Excellency. Can you tell me a little bit more about this Avida lifestyle and who exactly you're aiming it at? Who's your demographic? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Georgia. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, well, Avida is really uh, a lifestyle business uh, concept that is aimed at successful people who have transitioning who are transitioning to their next stage of life. Um, by that, I mean people who have really uh, built um, successful careers and businesses, who have raised families, uh, and have now ample time and resources, and they want to do activities and be in a community of like-minded people. So um, I wouldn't call it just retirement, but these are people who are still very active and would like to even start new businesses. Uh, and I'm an example on that also myself. So since I've left my, uh, my official job, uh, I've started this business because I would like to be in that kind of uh, environment. What type of services are you expecting to offer at Avida? I, I mentioned there the Longevity Centre, which I understand might be one of the first the UAE has seen. Of course, they're very popular already in the United States and, and Europe, aren't they? That's right. That's right. Um, so Avida will have actually four pillars, if you will. One will be the residential and the living side of it, which has to do with the, the even the designing of the homes. I say it. We have to design homes that can grow with us, that can adapt to our needs as we you know, grow older, if you will. So that is one part. The, um, the other part is the longevity and the wellness, which has to do with, of course, living, because we are all living longer now, uh, as you were saying also. So people are living longer overall in the group, but uh, are we living better? So we see that there are a lot of issues that we, you know, challenges that we face as we grow older, like diabetes, like maybe sedentary life that we have had before. So the longevity center will look into improving the quality of life as we go through the years. Um, the other um, part is also the community. And I think that is very important uh, because we might be living among people and all, but uh, a lot of people have heard uh, say that they feel lonely, right? Uh, even though they're in groups. Mm. So maybe this community that we are creating of like-minded people will try to focus on doing activities for people who then they can share their experiences together. So it sounds, so the, uh, okay. yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, 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 it sounds like a very sensible offering, but it's so interesting that you're starting it here in the United Arab Emirates. Dubai, traditionally a city for young people. Do you think mm. that is changing? I suppose you must. Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, and really, Dubai has positioned itself, UAE as a whole, I would say, because UAE is a, is a country that uh, welcomes people from 200 nationalities, right? 
Uh, and um, before, you know, I would say maybe 10 years ago, 10 to 5 years ago, it was mainly looked at, as you're saying, it's for the young people to come in and build their businesses and their careers and all. But um, recently, there have been so, so many changes that have happened here. In terms of regulation also, you have the golden visa, for instance, and you have retirement visa now. So people who maybe have worked here before, 20 years ago, and went back to their countries, they can come back again and continue enjoying the good life that we have here in UAE and, and in Dubai. So the, the, the whole environment is changing, and that is because the whole population of the world is growing older, right? So people are living longer. And I think uh, the vision of Dubai is very smart by creating that environment that is going to be now easier for all demographics to be living here. So, and that is the opportunity that we are seeing. But of course, you need to put all the other uh, areas to support it also. I think the healthcare then becomes very important. Yes, and insurance. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and the health insurance. Well, oddly enough, we're going to talk about the healthcare uh, with a doctor in our next interview to find out how those sort of geriatric uh, provisions are changing. I wanted to ask you, and, and you touched on it just there, the health insurance, because retiring in the UAE is still expensive. Although the um, you're right, the golden visa is there, and, and you can now do it legally. It is still expensive from the perspective of health insurance. And and I have to admit, your your housing is I don't want to say estate, but your community yeah. is is luxury. Mm-hmm. You are you are punting for, for rich people sure. ultimately. It is, it is. The segment that we are targeting is of course people who are um, mobile also globally, right? So a lot of our target market will be people who have maybe uh, homes in more than one country, you know, so they are very mobile. Uh, and for them then insurance becomes also very international. So the coverage that they get, it's not only confined to one mm. uh, country, for instance. So it can go beyond borders. Uh, that is the target. But I think even the insurance market here will adapt to the needs that are coming in. I think we are creating the forces that are going to make even insurance companies to look into this now. It's an opportunity for them. And I think as more demands will come, probably there'll be a pressure on the prices to also be reduced. So I think the, the future of that is going to be even more positive. Mm. Uh, it's just a matter of time that you will have even easier health insurance that can go beyond countries that people can use in UAE also. You must have a real sort of sense, you know, a finger on the pulse of this, this demographic from your research. Do you think that mm-hmm. international visitors, you know, these mobile rich are confident in the health system here? Do you think it's ready to receive them? Yes. Uh, yeah, even that has changed. I would say, for instance, um, you know, I used to work abroad, right, representing my country outside. And we used to have a lot of UA nationals, you know, who used to go abroad for, for their um, care, health care. But recently, in the last few years, that has even uh, changed because we've had a lot of new healthcare institutes that have been opening up here. For instance, in Abu Dhabi, you have the Cleveland Clinic, for instance. In Dubai, you know, for the last year that I've been here, I've been seeing so many amazing health institutions that have opened here. For instance, uh, you know, the, you've maybe interviewed some of them also through your program. Mm. Um, one area that I think we need to maybe work on more, uh, that will be the rehab, you know, the care that can come for the geriatric and all. I think that is some area that is a little bit, missing here. I think I see a gap in the market here, but I, maybe with time that can also improve. So it has become a lot better than before. 
and, and there are so many different uh, um, clinics and, and hospitals. And of course, the government is always supporting the private sector to open um, their clinics. And also, I think this has changed also to the, to the better, to the positive uh, right now. It does sound absolutely fascinating. We've been talking about the the shift towards the Grey Dirham on the agenda quite a bit now, and it is really interesting to hear about Avida's development. Um, Your Excellency, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Uh, That is Hafsa Al-Ulama. She's the CEO of Avida, and you heard her just there mention that um, she uh, represented her country abroad. She has in the past been the ambassador for the UAE to Germany. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. We are discussing the Grey Dirham on the programme today as a new luxury retirement estate launches in Dubai. And we're asking whether this is the start of a surge of retirees moving to the UAE. Now, in the past, when we've talked about this on the agenda, it's sort of emerged that, yes, people would love to retire here, but can they? No, because of concerns over healthcare costs. Basically, insurance premiums, uh, once you're over 65, just go completely through the roof. And as a consequence, that is the major hurdle for people who are looking to retire. Has anything changed? Is anything going to change? Uh, Let's find out. I'm joined now by Christopher Habib. He is the Chief Strategy Officer of NMC Healthcare. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Tell me, are you starting to see more old people either move into the UAE or refuse to leave once they've retired? Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. And yes, I think, I mean, it's it's becoming very apparent that let's say the geriatric population, the 65 plus, is is that a focus? You know, the DOH is talking about it, the DHA is talking about it. Um, all the healthcare groups are either preparing for or already in uh, catering to the geriatric population. As an example, we have a, a brand called Provita, which used to historically cater to geriatric care, you know, local population um, needs. Uh, and today we're looking to expand that need into uh, what we call the the, the expat uh, uh, geriatric care community, which is, you know, with, with all forecasts um, estimated to grow about 4x in the next uh, seven years. Wow, that is a big number. What is it that they need from a healthcare point of view? What kind of services are you looking to develop? So we're looking to develop uh, two or two or three main services. One is the the home care service. Um, one of the largest needs of the geriatric population is either to be at home with their families or you know at, at, in their homes, because that psychologically helps uh, helps them and, and elongates their 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 livelihoods essentially, uh, and keeps them happy. Uh, so home care services will play an, an, a critical role in this uh, in this population. Um, especially serving, you know, some of the common chronic conditions such as hypertension, high cholesterol, arthritis. You just need someone that's there to, to care for the person, ensure that they're they're healthy in their day to day lives, uh, and ensure that they're able to to function, um, you know, in their lives as 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 normal essentially. Um, the second is is what you've been mentioning is around you know some of these luxury or, or let's say uh, assisted living communities where um, you would either have a nurse and a physician on call, you would likely have some caregivers, 
um, to essentially as, uh, enable you know those retirees and and those that have reached the, the geriatric age um, to continue their day to day lives as 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 normal as possible. Would you see NMC Healthcare getting involved in? nursing homes effectively or do you think NMC Healthcare will just stick with the if you're coming into hospital we'll deal with you here in in a sort of doctor's environment do you think there'll be that crossover for you guys there there will definitely be that crossover Um, we have already uh, entered into that that space Um, so we do have a a fleet uh, and a a, a man you know manpower of, of nurses essentially uh, which do cater to that uh, to that population at the moment. We we are seeing a rising demand, um, either either through cash patients or through insurance patients. As you mentioned correctly, you know the, the largest uh, um, drawback that allows people to to come retire here is actually the the high cost of of, uh, of healthcare. But through effective management, preventive maintenance of of that healthcare, I think premiums can can come down. Um, you know, I think some of the the um, uh, some of the home care companies will start exploring a capitation model with some of the insurance companies to essentially bring down that that cost of of healthcare um, and ensure that you know through preventative maintenance um, you you kind of um, avoid some of the more acute cases that that essentially cause the cost of healthcare to to increase um, considerably. Yeah, it does seem like one of the touch points at the moment in geriatric care is more about um, sort of well living. You know, this idea that if you can reduce somebody's weight, make sure that they're eating the right food, getting it a bit of exercise, that they've got the right company that keeps people's spirits up as well, that, that maybe you're, you know, you put out a little bit of expenditure there and therefore you get a lot back because they don't lean on the hospital services, you know, the more serious types of services quite as much. Can I ask who exactly. is, um, who do you think is investing in developing the geriatric care here? At the moment, we just spoke to, um, a, you know, a private company, but is the public sector getting involved as well from what you've seen? They are. Um, at every conference I've attended, uh, attended this year, geriatric care came up as a, as a key priority for both the DOH and the DHA. Uh, I know they are coming up with, uh, you know, geriatric standards of care, uh, both for hospitals, but for, for you know, home care as well. Um, I think what needs to follow is, is uh, the insurance companies also need to, to start developing, you know, specific products for geriatric care specific coverage, um, I think we will see a mix between the capitation model and uh, and let's say the traditional premium premiums that you would see on uh, on, on any given insurance scheme. Uh-huh. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, Christopher Habib, Chief Strategy Officer there of NMC Healthcare, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda. This is, I have to admit, this is a topic that is ringing, that, that's looming very large in my own life. We've just had my in-laws out last week and my dad's here at the moment. My dad... Um, uh, has limited mobility now, so he gets to go around on one of those trundly, um, what do you call them, uh, electric wheelchairs. Anyway, and he's absolutely loving it. And he's also loving the attitude that, that, that there is out here towards people of determination. And I think that, you know, the, the sort of 
people people are just really kind and really respectful. You know, my dad had a gardener basically stop traffic for him earlier so that he could get across the road. So you get this sense that that if this geriatric community does increase here in the UAE, I think they could be incredibly happy because of the atmosphere as well as the healthcare. Christopher, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you join the radio. Uh, we will be speaking to you soon. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, UAE residents are going to be able to fly direct to Bhutan in January for the very first time. That is the as the country's airline opens a new route from Sharjah. Now, the country maintains a certain mystique. I don't know about you, but it sort of seems, it does seem slightly mysterious, doesn't it? And I think that's in part because it strictly regulates the number of tourists it receives by charging a sustainable development fee of $100 a night. And the other reason why Bhutan makes headlines is because it is the first nation to achieve net zero emissions. So how did they do that? And how are they planning to balance expanding their tourism sector while remaining eco-friendly. To talk about that, I'm joined on the line now by Carissa Nima, who is from Bhutan's Department of Tourism, who joins me all the way from Bhutan. Carissa, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Can you tell me, first of all, who you are hoping to attract with these new direct flights uh, to and from Bhutan? Hi, good morning. Uh, good morning, Dubai from Timpu. It's a beautiful day today, uh, quite chilly, but extremely beautiful. So um, the GCC is definitely one of the target markets that we're looking at. So as you rightly mentioned, the sustainable development fee is $100 per person per night, with children being 50% off. So Bhutan attracts, it's not just for the higher, you know, wealthy tourists, it's for people who really want to um, engage and connect with a beautiful, um, authentic untouched destination. How are you managing to expand your tourism sector while keeping true to your sustainable principles over in Bhutan? So the sustainable development fee funds a range of projects. So that's that could include um, free healthcare and and free education for all Bhutanese. It funds a range of sustainability projects, conservation projects. It funds infrastructure upgrades. It funds upskilling for the youth and especially those in tourism. So um, the fee is a very, very important part of Bhutan's development. It's also very transparent. It's all you know published in reports on the website. So um, the Bhutan aims to strike a balance between you know this money, the sustainable development fee, and also attracting the right amount of tourists because uh, Bhutan is not uh, a mass tourism destination. It's never been and it never wants to be. So I think it's it's about finding this special a special number. You know, there, there is no cap on visitor numbers, but it's about finding this right balance between um, tourism that's, that's healthy for the for the um, entire industry and the entire kind of ecosystem around tourism, but at the same time having the right amount of funds that that supports these critical projects. 
I mean, Bhutan does hold this extraordinary title of being the first nation to achieve net zero emissions. What do you think other countries have to learn from Bhutan, especially countries that are just developing their tourism sector? And and if you think about it, we've got a country just next door here that's doing that in Saudi Arabia. They just launched their tourism sector four years ago now and certainly are gathering you know, pace. But, but what do you think other countries can learn? So I think there's a lot that Bhutan could teach the world, um, not just about sustainability, but in different areas as well. But I think that tourism and travel is a privilege. And um, I, I don't like to see it when countries are so reliant on tourism, but the money doesn't go back into improving the wider communities. So it's really, you know, having mass tourism tourists to your country is very good for some people, those with vested interests or those investors in that in tourism. But how does that affect a country's environment or, or its wider community? So I think having some mechanism to make sure that the benefits and the profits from tourism go back into the wider community. That was Carissa Nima, who is Chief Marketing Officer for the Department of Tourism in Bhutan. Fascinating uh, case study, actually, Bhutan, because they are that first nation to achieve net zero emissions. Of course, let's hope they manage to stay true to their principles, uh, because in January, they're going to get a huge influx of tourists, potentially, as the country's airline, Bhutan Airlines, opens a new route to and from Sharjah. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. The UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. And we are still on Weather Watch here on Dubai 103.8. Rami says it actually has been raining around Abu Dhabi's airport since 4 a.m. I thought that Abu Dhabi hadn't been hit by the rainstorms. Uh, And also, we are still seeing a lot of water ponds around the DIFC area. It's pretty clear and sunny and lovely down here in Knowledge Village. But if you see anything different, please do keep us informed because we can tell everybody else what's going on. 4001 or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 We're going to turn our attention to sports now, though, with our very own sports editor, Chris McCarty. He is out and about. Chris, how are things looking out there? Yes, good morning. And really, there's only one place to start. That is locally. It is with the DP World Tour Championship because nothing has been able to escape the adverse weather conditions that have blighted the country this morning. The good news for golfing aficionados, the good news for ticket holders heading on down to Jumeirah Golf Estates today is that the golf will take place. The organisers have tweaked it slightly. There will be a two-tee start. The first of those will be out in about 20, 25 minutes time. 11 a.m. through to 12.48, all 50 of the DP World Tour players who are in attendance this week will get out, fingers crossed. The rain stays away, the thunder and the lightning does likewise, and we will get a completion to round two of this DP World Tour Championship. Three men sit atop of the leaderboard, a couple of Frenchmen in there, including Mathieu Pavon, Nikolai Hoygaard as well, the man who helped Europe clinch the Ryder Cup over in Rome a few short weeks ago. He's there at five under par. Uh, Men within touching distance, Tommy Fleetwood, Victor Hovland, all within a couple of shots of your three-way 
leaders. And what about the two big ones? Well, Rory McIlroy, he's down at one under par, a disappointing opening round by his lofty standards. He'll be happy, however, he did get under par. John Ram, a three-time winner of this event, the defending champion, lest we forget as well. He was one shot worse off yesterday, level par. So still within touching distance, only five shots back after round one. Those fellas will be looking to get out and put on a real good performance and a good show today to catapult themselves back into the reckoning heading into the weekend. As for the other sports, well, all eyes, of course, on Las Vegas as well. Making its return to Sin City is Formula One, and it's not got off to the best of starts, in truth, because just nine minutes into first practice, the red flags came out. There was a dodgy manhole cover. Yes, you heard that correct. Alpine's Esteban Ocon ran over it, some damage done to his chassis. Of course, the safety and the security of the drivers is absolute paramount. So the organisers whipped off the drivers. They are now going through a very, very thorough check of all the manhole covers throughout Las Vegas, or at least throughout the track, because of course this is a uh, street circuit. So that's not the best of news for Formula One fans. And the other big story, I guess, of this morning, it is Australia who will face India in the Cricket World Cup final. There weren't many Aussies not biting their fingernails last night. It got down to the final few balls, but eventually the Aussies, led by Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins, they got over the line, a three-wicket victory over the Proteus, whose long wait for a first Cricket World Cup final appearance continues. So the weekend, all eyes on host nations India, and you've got to feel if any nation is capable of upsetting the apple car, any nation is capable of upsetting a nation, it's the Aussies. It's India against Australia, should be a cracking final. So plenty of sporting intrigue this weekend, whether it's the golf, whether it's the F1, whether it is indeed the cricket. Enjoy it, folks. We're in for an absolute cracker. Chris McCarty there bringing us up to date with all the upcoming sport as well as all the sporting headlines. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, and frankly, our reporter Zane Scotland has lucked out today because there might have been a spot of rain this morning, but it is looking absolutely beautiful now. Zane, has, uh, do we now have action on... It's not a pitch, is it? It's a course. It's a golf course, you're right. We do actually have action. The the tour were quite smart in that they kind of saw this where, uh, with the expert uh, weather analysts saw the weather was coming in. So they made the call last night to move the tee times back and do a 2 tee start. So they kind of anticipated this to happen. This morning, that unfortunately, had to cancel the G4D Open, which is the top-ranked disabled golfers in the world come to play at this championship ahead of the main tournament. And they had to cancel that so that the greenkeepers could get out, work on the course, recover all the bunkers, remove all the... the the flooded and low areas and get the course back to its glistening self. But yeah, the course, uh, the weather now is actually better than yesterday. And I think the golfers are in for a great day on the golf course. Yeah. How quickly does the water evaporate? You know, when the golfers go out, will they be feeling it soggy underfoot or does that dry out pretty quickly in the UAE? It will definitely play softer to begin with. But as you say, like the, it's so warm here that, you know, it does firm up pretty quick. Any, like any big puddles and so forth, the greenkeepers actually go out and actually use their pumps and suck all the water out to get it playable from the first part. But other than that, it will be, will be a little bit soft underfoot, so the drives won't be going quite as far. But the other side is it makes the approach shots easier. So today we'll see the scoring much, much lower than yesterday. 
I have two frenetic golf fans in my home at the moment. My dad is over from the UK. He flew over for this golf tournament. And if anything, uh, my stepmother, Gail, is even more enthusiastic than him. So I know that Rory McIlroy, for example, is not performing as well as we might have expected. No, he didn't get off to the start he wanted yesterday, but that was really due to weather. The wind started to pick up. This storm started to just show its face late yesterday afternoon. So he was playing at the back end of the field alongside John Rahm. And they had probably had, they had the toughest part of the day and they kind of both stuttered coming in, maybe, you know, getting each other's slipstreams, pulling each other down a little bit and had a poor finish. But he's back on the birdie train today. He's, had, he's got off to a good start. And he's up to 15th place already, no, 12th place already. So today is the day for a Roy McIlroy charge. It's soft. He can hit the ball far off the tee and fire at all the pins. But yeah, as you say, it wasn't the start either Roy McIlroy or John Rahm were looking for. But I think that was weather dependent. Zane, absolute pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy your day. You definitely got the long straw. That's right, isn't it? The short straw is if you get something wrong. You definitely got the long straw because it's a beautiful day down there and you've got some fantastic golf to watch. And uh, of course, if you are planning to head down over the weekend, the forecast is good. Uh, So make sure uh, rain doesn't stop play for you. Um, And I'm very jealous for anyone who gets to go down there uh, this weekend. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, schools are off across Dubai and the Northern Emirates today. After those epic storms we saw overnight and into this morning, I was woken up at 5.20 this morning by the thunder and lightning and I didn't get back to sleep. So by about lunchtime today, I'm going to be completely exhausted. Uh, But it is a lucky coincidence that we'd arranged for the VP of Education for GEMS to join us on the radio this morning. Uh, Matthew Burfield, the principal of GEMS Founders School, was due to speak to us about their net zero school and we are going to get to that. Uh, But first, let's just briefly talk about the weather. Matthew, how are you? You're having a rain day today. Schools are closed, aren't they? Good morning. Lovely to see you. Uh, Yes, we are having a rain day today. Uh, Fortunately, we were prepared for this. We had the uh, NMC weather report. So we had let our communities know last night there may be a rain day today. And uh, that meant this morning we were able to relatively seamlessly move into that at about six o'clock this morning, let everybody know not to get onto those roads and instead to uh, engage in the remote learning option. Yes, I have to say my children who uh, don't go to a a GEM school, but we won't hold that against each other, um, are also (laughs) off school. Um, I don't know how much home learning is going on. I think there's quite a lot of riding bicycles in their swimming cozies through puddles. Um, Peppa Pig has a lot to answer for when it comes to the puddle situation. Um, But good news that you've managed to keep most of the kids at uh, at home. Do you think that they will be doing the home learning? Do you think that it will be as seamless as we hope? The seamless move into home learning was definitely (laughs) from our provision. I I can guarantee that. But uh, in terms of the home learning options and opportunities you just talked about, for me as an educator, I love those two. So I think children getting out, playing in puddles and playing in the nature and enjoying it um, is an educational experience as well. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, just as long as we provide it and we know we've given them everything that they need so there was no gap in learning brilliant that is good news indeed matthew let's move on to the subject of your net zero school which is why we booked you on the program today tell me where is it and when is it going to open 
we're really excited to uh, announce it yesterday across the nation. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be in Abu Dhabi in Mazdar City. And it is going to be the third GEMS Founders School that we're adding to the portfolio. So really excited about that as well. Um, uh, having been the founding principal of GEMS Founders School here in Dubai in 2016, uh, it's been a real pleasure and honour to watch that brand grow across Dubai. And now to bring it with our partners in Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi is going to be a really exciting chance. And it opens in September 2024. Fantastic. How have you achieved this net zero umbrella? I'm going to be honest, we see a lot of greenwashing going on at the moment, but I'm sure you guys have dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Absolutely. And just listening to the ads as we led into this uh, conversation, yeah, there's lots of it out there. I think the key that we've made is it's about net zero energy. Uh, So hopefully in all our releases, you're reading about that specific focus that we're having. So there is a huge span of nine and a half thousand square meters of solar panels. And this will ensure that internally in the school, it's a net zero energy return. So we're really focusing on that specific part of our school. And of course, then building that within the curriculum so the children really learn about that concept from all the way from three years old all the way up till they leave our school and head off to the university and life. Now, obviously, it's, it's good for the environment. But is it something that parents are calling for? Is it something that the kids are calling for? We've definitely seen our children calling for it. And I think, uh, you know, we uh, led the Road to COP28 conference here only three weeks ago at GEMS Founder School, which was a GEMS education-wide conference based on an MUN-style approach. And actually, that was a student-led initiative. That was three of our student leaders who came to us and said, we've got this amazing event happening here in the UAE, but we want to build that in and we want to make sure all the young people know all about it. So the students are definitely clamoring for us to do more. Uh, It is going to be their their earth that they inherit. So we definitely want it to come from them. And I think parents are slowly tuning into that concept as well. Yeah, I'm a bit slower than the boys, that's for sure. Um, Tell me, is this the first of many net zero schools? For example, are you looking into retrofitting some of your schools with solar panels, for example? So actually, across all of our schools, we have within our education strategy a really key vertical to deliver a zero waste concept over the next two to three years anyway. So all of our schools are working on sustainable platforms and certainly in lots of initiatives. Um, And that has already included some solar panel retrofitting in in some of our schools. But I think what you've seen, and and you will know about Metropole Al-Waha that's opened up, which was our latest new school here in Dubai, that already came with lots of sustainable concepts built within it, a biodome that's going to be opened, real farming opportunities and forest opportunities for the children. So each new school we're opening, we're just making sure that it's at the very core of what we do as well as then all of our schools across the UAE having an opportunity to make sure they have a sustainable initiative at the core of what they do as well. Matthew Burfield, fantastic to get you on the radio. Two topics for the price of one. You don't often get that on the radio. Uh, Really good to have you. Uh, Matthew is the principal of GEMS Founders School, also uh, the VP of Education for GEMS, which is, of course, one of the biggest school providers here in the UAE. Thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Right, we are turning our attention here on The Agenda now to the role of children at the upcoming COP28 climate change talks. We are, oh gosh, I do the countdown every day. I think we're 13 days to go now. And the UAE is keen to include youth in the event. 
11 young people are actually going to be given the opportunity to address delegates. They'll be alongside adult speakers as well, and that'll be at the Children and Youth Pavilion. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by one of the children who'll be allowed to speak. Selina Marwaha is nine years old. She's in year four at Brighton College, Dubai, and she joins me now in the studio. Her her mum, Sherlin, is here as well, but we're going to mostly talk to Selina. How are you, Selina? Thank you for joining joining us in the studio. Tell me, how did you first get involved with these COP28 talks? Well, I first got involved when I was five years old and I worked with the TEDx speaker, Mara Mincer, to make like a park to design based on desert habitat. Like it had a seesaw, um, had a spider on it and swings in the shape of a camel and a mural with buttons on it that told you about the desert habitat. So you literally started your sustainability work when you were five years old. Yeah, and I, then I did numerous art and coding competitions. And the most recent one being the Water Innovation Challenge by the Emirates Environmental Group. And I was the only girl finalist in the junior category. Good for you. And is that how you got involved with the opportunity to speak at this pavilion? Is that what led into that? Yeah, I think so. That's awesome. So tell me, what are you going to be actually talking about at the Children and Youth Pavilion? Well, I will be talking about the importance of art and technology. I want to spread my message to kids because their voices matter. Their age is not a barrier. It's just a number. They, they too can make a difference. And when they all start making a difference, this world will be a better place. And have you always felt passionately that children can do more to help save the environment? Yes, I have. And so what do you feel about what it's going to be like when you're standing up there on the stage in front of all of these delegates, all of these adults? Are you looking forward to that opportunity? I am looking forward to it because then kids can spread their message to adults and the adults can organise things to get those words into action. How do you think children feel nowadays? Do you think that children feel they have a voice? Do you think children feel that they can do something about the climate crisis? They should, but as of now, I don't think they're doing much. But once this message gets out to them, they should be like planting the trees and helping the environment, less littering, less food waste and buying what they need, not what they want. I mean, that is, it, it is amazing to hear you say all of those things. I think we just need to highlight the fact that, Celine, you're nine years old and I don't want to patronise you because you're speaking so brilliantly, better than most adults do on the radio. So I'm going to ask you quite a difficult question now that I wouldn't normally ask a nine-year-old. Are you hopeful that the COP28 climate talks will be successful? I think it will be successful because there's already these people that are very into the climate action and they will and most likely they will put my words into action so that will help the planet and because now we're facing very big problems but my words might help put them right. 
Selena, you are an absolute inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me on the radio today. It's been a great pleasure to have you in with us. You've just been listening to the voice of Selena Marwaha. She's nine years old. She's in year four at Brighton College, Dubai. And she has been, uh, and you can tell why, she has just been awarded the opportunity to address delegates at the Children and Youth Pavilion during the COP28 climate change talks. Selena, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.